started a new series uh, last week and, uh, and also a new book. Uh, the book is uh, called First Samuel and the series that we're doing is, is Samuel. And Samuel is going to last about seven weeks. We'll get done right before the 1st of July. Actually, I think July 2nd is the last sermon in regards to this series. Um, and then in the fall, we're going to bring up another series uh, called the Book of Saul. So Samuel is the leader God wanted. And then Saul is going to be the leader the people chose. And then we'll move into David, which would be the leader after God's own heart. Whenever we're um, part of a church, loving God and praying to God, there's always this word that comes to the surface. And the word is revival. I want a revival in my life. I want a revival in our country. I want God to uh, just manifest his strength, his presence, and many people come to the saving knowledge of who he is. Revival is a word that we toss around quite a bit um, as a church. When you look at the word revival, you see different components um, in every single revival that takes place. And those components are very consistent with the revivals that are happening, you know, in regards to the Reformation, in regards to the Great Awakening, um, in regards to the book of, uh, the book of Acts. Uh, what are those uh, components? You're always going to get the component of prayer. A massive amount of prayer takes place. You get the component of the Word of God um, rising uh, that happens. When the Word of God rises, people are, are changed, and the Spirit of God is, is like unleashed when the Word of God is um, presented. And when you look at revival, there's always seems like leaders that you uh, connect revivals with. You know, you go to the great, the Reformation, you have uh, Jonathan, or not, uh, you have Martin Luther, and you have John Calvin, you have John Knox inside the Reformation. The Great Awakening, you have, you know, Jonathan Edwards. And, and then you go to the book of Acts, you have, you know, Paul the Apostle, and you got Peter, and you have the apostles uh, that walked with Jesus, the disciples that walked with Jesus. So it's connected with people, and these people are doing... Um, Certain things, in fact, there's something inside of them that is driving them. Something inside of them is pushing them, moving them, making them. When we look at the concept of revival, one area we don't look is is First Samuel. If you look at the book of First Samuel, uh, there is uh, a revival that's going to take place right after the end of the book of First Samuel, and it's a revival when King David takes the throne. And as a result of him taking the throne, a revival breaks across the, all the land. Well, First Samuel is setting the stages for this revival. First Samuel is is um, is given a revelation of the characters of the individuals that are are going to be um, changing the world. Individuals that are um, that are going to be making the move towards a revival that's happening. So we go clear to the first. Chapter and we see Hannah, and we got a whole summary of of uh, Hannah's life and, and who she was and her commitment to the Lord. Uh, in fact, First Samuel starts with the first chapter with Samuel's mom completely barren. The result of being barren, cannot have a baby. She was broken before the Lord, and and she went before the Lord, and her soul cried out before the Lord. And in the process of her soul crying out. She changed to the point of, God, I don't want to have a baby for me. I want to have a baby for you. And then she took the baby and she dedicated it to the temple. It means that after she nursed the baby, approximately like three years, two years, she gave the child, the baby, to the temple for him to work and serve God for the rest of his life as a Nazarite. And, of course, that baby's name is Samuel. At the end of chapter 1, you see her handing the baby or the child 
uh, to Eli, who is the priest. And the passage that we're going to be looking at today is talking about Samuel's working environment. And when you see Samuel's working environment, there's going to be three different characters, actually four. It'd be Eli's sons. That'd be Hophnius and Phinehas. And then Eli, you'll see his character. And then you'll see Samuel's character in this passage that I'm going to read. But just explain how this passage works is, is the passage is not about Samuel at all. It's about Hophnius and Phinehas. The first part is Hophnius and Phinehas. It talks about how corrupted they are and what they do, how big of a mess they are. And then it goes from that to Eli. And it talks about how passive Eli is. And at the end of the passage, it talks about God's judgment. I thought we were talking about Samuel. <laughs> it's really interesting in this passage because as they're telling the stories of Hophnius and Phinehas, and then telling the stories of Eli, and then talking about their judgment, there's five one-liners in there about Samuel. Just, just one-liners tell you who he is. Why is there only one-liners in there about Samuel? Because you really don't need two-liners to explain the character of who Samuel is with these powerful one-liners that are being presented in this passage. These one-liners is what's setting the, uh, setting the stage and setting the foundation for a revival taking place. It describes exactly who Samuel is as a child. And as we read this passage and we go through this passage and you see these one-liners, if you want revival, this is what we need to migrate towards. These one-liners are what we need to migrate towards. So let's open up the book of 1 Samuel and uh, we will start reading. It'd be chapter 2, starting at verse 11. I'll point out these one-liners as we are reading. And you'll see that they are kind of out of place, but they're supposed to be out of place for a reason. And Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord. There's your first one-liner. Who's Samuel? He's a boy, ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when a man offered sacrifice, a priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give me meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from, the, um, from you, but only raw. And if a man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take us much as it wish, much as he wish, he could say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Then the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord. There's another one-liner. A boy clothed with linen ephod. And his mother moved off of Samuel, talking about his mother. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take to him each year. And when she went up to her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice, then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give your children by this woman for the petition she asks of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord did visit Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and the two daughters. 
is another one-liner. And the boy, Samuel, grew in the presence of the Lord. Moving on with Eli, verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing all through Israel, and how they had lay with the women who were staying at the, or staying at the entrance of the tent meeting. And she said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of the evil dealings of all, with all these people. No, my sons, it is not good to report. It's not good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But you would not listen to the voice of the fathers, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. There's another one-liner. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Moving on to verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of those fathers when they were there, when they were in Egypt to subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to the altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifice and my offerings that I have commanded, commanded for my dwelling and honored your sons before me by fattening yourselves on the choicest part of every offering of the people of Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that the house of the house of, of your father should go, in, should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will be that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in your distress you will look with envious eye on the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. Only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this the Lord, and this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you, both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise, here comes the last one, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in the house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, Please, put me in the priest's places, that I may eat a morsel of bread. So as we're looking at this passage, what we want to do is we want to break it up to the different characters that were mentioned above. First character was Hophnius and Phineas. Talk about Eli's sons. Who were they? Well, the Bible explains exactly who they were. Number one, they were worthless men. We see that in verse 12. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. <laughs> when I ask the question, what does God really think about them? <laughs> I mean, this is how he introduces them. You are worthless men. What's going to probably be on their headstone? They were worthless men. A lot of the translations talk about they were evil men. Were they evil? Absolutely. You see in the passage that they're, they're sleeping with um, the servant girls at the, that were working at the temple. Yes, they were 
evil men. They were wicked men. Another translation would take place. That's who they were. There's a one-liner for you explaining them. There's another line explaining them. They did not know the Lord. And we find this on the other half of verse 12. They did not know the Lord. That'd be number two. This is pretty devastating. Devastating to the country. Devastating to the, the church. Devastating to the world. They were at the temple. Now what's at the temple? The temple is, is the Pentateuch. You have the law of God. You have the words of God. You have the dwelling of God at, at, at the temple. I'm sorry, it's the tabernacle. At the tabernacle in Shiloh. Is that you, have, you have the dwelling place of God at the tabernacle. So if people are going to know God, they're going to go to the tabernacle to do their sacrifice to get to know God. And there were, the people that were running it were people that don't even know the Lord. They didn't even know the Lord. I mean, when you talk about judges, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. 300 years of horrificness taking place through the book of Judges. We're still in the book of Judges, it looks like. These people who are in charge don't know the Lord. What are they about their sons? Eli's sons? They were cheaters. Whenever you bring a sacrifice, yes, the animal has to die. Then the animal has to be burnt, has to be boiled. And uh, as the animal is burnt, boiled, the, the meat goes, ends up going to the priest. Well, you know, Hophni and Sophinius, they didn't want boiled meat. They wanted raw meat. The reason why they wanted raw meat, because then they could prepare the meat the way they want to prepare the meat. And they're going to sell the meat as well, so they can sell the meat to other people that will give them more income on top of it. It also allows them to have power because, I mean, they're people of great supply. Because people are giving the supply to God and they're taking the supply. Cheating in such a way that they're benefiting themselves and using the house of God to benefit themselves. See that in verse 15. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give me meat for the priest to roast. So I like it roasted instead. For he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. Your people who ruled by force. We see that in verse 16. It says, if they don't give him raw meat, this is what happens. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, and then take it as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I'll take it by force. We'll take what we want, when we want, how we want, where we want, and we'll use the temple of the Lord, tabernacle of God, to do it. Number five, Eli's sons, they were treated. The Lord's offering was contempt. It says it in verse 17. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. There are people that should not be leading the house of God. There are people that should not even be close to the house of God, not less have influence. But the priest, the ultimate priest, was who? It was Eli. It was his, their father. So who was Eli? I mean, these people were, you know, sleeping with the women. These people were stealing. These people were cheating. Well, who was Eli? Let's look at Eli's character. Eli was an old, Eli was old and had little influence over his sons. says that in verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. All that his sons were doing to all Israel. Older person. And how they lay with women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. What's he do? And he said to them, Why do you do such things? 
For I hear of your evil dealings with these people. My sons, it is not good to report that I hear. It's not a good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will meditate or mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. They not listen to the voice of the father. He would say it, but they would not listen. Okay, if they're not going to listen, then kick them out. Get rid of them. But Eli, you can almost sense in this passage, was a little more intimidated by his two sons. He did not kick them out. And they did not listen to him. So he just kept on living in the midst of this garbage that has taken place. Who else is Eli? Eli didn't exert the power to get rid of his sons. And he failed to restrain them. We see that the Lord rejects Eli's household, starting in verse 27. In verse 29, as the Lord is talking to Eli, he says this, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling, and and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people of Israel? This is God confronting Eli and says, Why have you taken your son's interests instead of mine? The tabernacle of God in Shiloh is is a mess. It's fallen apart. we got the book of Judges infiltrated right now in the book of 1 Samuel. But there's light. There's light off this one person. This one person named Samuel. Now I want to set this up because Samuel is not an adult. Samuel is, is a boy. And as he's a boy, you have Eli who is a priest, and you have Hophius and Phineas who are using God's people to get what they want, to make money and to spread wealth. And then you have a boy that's in the midst of him. Who is this boy? Let's go to the one-liners and find out who this boy is. Number eight, Samuel ministered to the Lord. It's a one-liner. Just trying to explain who Samuel is. Does this statement really explain who Samuel is? Well, it's a statement that is thrown out there in verse 11. It says, and the boy, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord. Yes, this explains exactly who Samuel is. What we can do is we can take this passage and we can read it really fast. And as we read it really fast, we can go over it and say, oh yeah, Samuel ministered to the Lord. He's, he's a wonderful guy. But what did you just say? He ministered to the Lord? Let me tell you what that does not mean. It does not mean that he ministered for the Lord. You know, that's kind of how our culture speaks. You know, we want a revival to take place. So let's, let's minister for God. You know, let's do ministry for God. You want to do ministry for God? Great. I want to do ministry for God. Let's do ministry for God together. That's kind of how our culture speaks. We don't say, hey, let's minister to the Lord together. We don't say that. What else does it not say? It does not say ministered by the Lord. It doesn't say even ministered with the Lord, which again, our culture speaks. We minister with the Lord. We minister by the Lord. We minister for the Lord. But have you ever used the concept inside of our culture? We need to start ministering to God. What does that mean? <laughs> that we minister to God. This is what it means, letter A. In everything you do, do it for the Lord. If you're going to need to forgive your brother, don't forgive your brother for their sake. Forgive your brother for the Lord. If you're going to love your neighbor, I mean, the concept is not 
loving your neighbor for somebody's sake. Because if you're loving the neighbor for your sake, what's going to happen is they don't deserve it. <laughs> they shouldn't have it. They haven't earned it. And this is the way we fo- focus in America, is in our cultures. We, we look around and says, this person um, you know, um, has done something against me, and I should forgive them. But in my evaluation that I have in my own mind and my own thoughts and my own will says, why? Because I see who they are, I see what they've done, and I can forgive that person, but I shouldn't forgive that person as a result of my decision. But you're supposed to forgive that person, and in the process of forgiving that person, you're doing what? You're ministering to the Lord. Not because that person deserves it, but because God deserves it. So we don't use this concept. We need to minister to the Lord. And the reason why we don't use it, because it confronts the very depths of our soul and the heart of our being. Because we want to justify different things um, within our actions. Well, I'm not going to forgive that person because they don't deserve it. There's only one person that deserves anything. Do you know that? There's only one person that deserves to be ministered to. Who is it? It's the one who lived a perfect life, who left heaven, who came to earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, went to the grave and rose again, and we can have redemption in him, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's the only one that we should minister to, that has earned the right to be ministered to. This passage is saying, minister to him, and by doing that, you'll be ministering to everybody else. Forgive him because God has forgiven you. Give to him because God has forgiven to you. Love him because God has loved you. Serve her because God has served you. Everything we do, we do it on the concept of doing it for the Lord, not for the person that deserves it. This was, this was Samuel. Samuel had his mind in one direction. He had his heart in one direction. What I do, I do it for the Lord. If I think it should be done or not, if God says to do it, I'm still going to do it. Because all my ministry is based on that. When you take care of people, take care of people for the Lord. Not to please the person. You don't live to please the man. You live to please the Lord. Don't get angry. Don't get angry. Don't get angry for the Lord. That's, that's what Samuel is doing. This is what I am connected with. Minister to the Lord. Everything you do, do it for him. We see that in Matthew chapter 25. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. And then people would look and say, God, when were you hungry? When were you sick? When were you naked? When were you in prison? We don't understand. He says, if you did it for the least of my brethren, you did it for who? You did it for me. All of our focus in this world should not be towards the people that we're working with and whether they earn it, deserve it, or should have it or not, just directly for the Lord. You know, talk about revival. That's when revival starts to take place. When everybody inside the church says, we're not working for the people that are out there. We're working for the Lord. And as a result, we will do exactly what he wants, when he wants, and how he wants it to be done. Number nine, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. That's different. It's different than Samuel's ministering to the Lord. Samuel's ministering before the Lord. Well, where do we find that? We find that in 18. Again, just a fast one-liner. Samuel was ministering before the Lord. Just describing who is. Well, what does that mean? Ministering before the Lord means that you're ministering 
in front of the Lord. You're ministering in front of them. I'm working in front of God. I'm not ministering to him. I'm also working in front of him. Now, if you work in front of the Lord, um, you can do things a little bit different if, if you believe that concept to the degree that he is, that he is there. You know, I've been uh, um, planting my grass, and, you know, I wrote it in my letter because this grass is, like, really important. You know, I've taken my pastor, and I've, I put a grass seed in it um, because a wedding's going to take place there. But, you know, as a cow pastor, so it's all changing. Everything is changing on my properties. I'm doing this. Well, it rained forever, so I can't, couldn't plant it in the spring. And then it stopped raining. And what I mean by stopped raining is it rained no more since it stopped raining. I mean, haven't you guys seen outside? Now, I'm, I'm not complaining, but a little bit I am complaining just because I got my seed down and then it stopped raining. So now I'm dependent on my irrigation system and my irrigation system is weak. So I'm thinking, is it going to be green? And then I have nightmares <laughs> on, on grass that is all dried out and all crusty and everything. And, and I had this dream last week and it was a dream that really touched the depths of my soul. I mean, it actually really moved me. In fact, I would even call it a revelation. Um, is that you can paint grass. I, it was so clear in my mind of a spray painter when I was dreaming that you just paint it green. It doesn't matter if it's brown, just paint it green. And when I woke up and came to, I really felt like you could do that until I started to understand, I guess you probably can't paint grass, but it felt good. But why am I dreaming about that? The reason why I'm dreaming about that is because I'm working towards it because people are going to show up and that means that I'm working in front of people. And I want my grass to be green. Your life, you're always working in front of the Lord through the quiet hours and through our thoughts. He's always in front of him. You're always before him. He's always sitting next to you when you're on your phone. He's always sitting next to you when you're um, yelling at your mate, he's always sitting next to you in the process of doing everything. Samuel was ministering in front of God. God, you're always sitting next to me. I'm going to do what you want me to do as if you are looking for me. Therefore, he's working with care. He's working with concern. He's working with diligence. He's pressing on the race, which where he can win the prize as he was working. Now don't forget where he is working. He's working in the temple with corrupt individuals. Extremely corrupt individuals. As you're a child and you see this corruption, what do you do? What do you do? Samuel did the only thing that he needed to do. And that was ministering to God and ministering before God. And God, you tell me the direction that I must go. In working inside this corrupt environment. The third thing that Samuel did, which is uh, uh, point 10, Samuel was growing in the presence of the Lord. We see that one liner in verse 22. And the boy, you notice every time it says boy, they want you to know that he's child. And the boy, Samuel, grew in the presence of the Lord. Now, when we read scripture, we know um, what takes place in the presence of the Lord. It says, in the presence of the Lord, there's fullness of joy. In the presence of the Lord, that will drive out fear. In the presence of the Lord, God provides peace. We know that as we read Scripture. Now, we can ask the question, does God always present in my life? 
The answer is yes. God is, is always present, but you don't believe it. <laughs> and so what happens when, when you're starving for the presence of the Lord, Samuel is saying, I am looking, growing in the presence of the Lord. And what he's doing, he's growing in belief that God is very present. And in that process, it is driving out his fear. It is creating a joy and it is bringing in peace because the presence of the Lord is showering down on him. What does the presence of the Lord mean? Or what's he saying in regards to the presence of the Lord? Number C is cultivate God's presence is exactly what is exactly what Samuel did. How do you cultivate God's presence? Cultivate God's presence with confessing our sins. Unconfessed sins is something that just pulls God's presence out. If you refuse to confess sins, you're justifying the sins and saying, oh yeah, they're not that big of a deal. You're watering sins down. But when you're confessing sin, you're saying to God, I am serious about this sin. The word confess is to speak out. And when you speak out that sin to God or speak out that sin to others, what's going to happen? God's going to want to fill you up with his presence. He wants to fill you up with joy. He wants to fill you up with peace. He wants to drive out that fear in that presence will do it something that's preventing that is unconfessed sins other things are tolerated sins sins that you know i know it's wrong but i'm just going to tolerate it is there a way that that god's presence can just overshower hophni and phineas i mean they were sleeping with ladies at the temple they were working there at the tabernacle i'm sorry i keep on saying temple it's not temple yet it's tabernacle they're sleeping with ladies at the tabernacle. They, they weren't confessing it. They were tolerating it. It's the way it is. How could God shower his presence and bring his peace? All it would do is just increase their passion for more sin. So he's got he's to pull it away. I'm not working with him. In fact, in this passage, Leah says, I just got to kill him. Because they're tolerating sin. Samuel was cultivating God's presence. Not tolerating sin and confessing sins. Another thing that, um, that uh, brings God's presence out is, is pride. What is pride? Pride is sitting on your own throne rather than letting God sit there. That's what pride is. Pride is look at me, don't look at God. If you look at me, then who's going to be saved? <laughs> well, my name's not worth a hill of beans. God's name saves. It's, it carries power. It carries glory. Pride, when pride goes down, Christ goes up. How can God shower his presence on you if we have pride, idolatry, selfishness, we, the list can go on in regards to things that repel God's, God's presence. Samuel's, I want no part of it. He says, I was growing in God's presence, meaning that he was cultivating the presence of God. Number 11, Samuel grew in stature and favor with the Lord and with men. We see that in uh, verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. What does the word stature mean? It means good standing. Growing in good standing with God and men. I'll give an example of good standing or lack thereof. Um, we've had a septic problem at our house for the last I think it was about five months, and uh, maybe even six. I don't want to say too long. Uh, but what happens is it just it gets full, and then it leaks out the top and just kind of dries and goes out into in the grass. 
And uh, so we called the septic system and says, hey, you guys need to uh, come out and pump it. And they encouraged me not to. And the reason why is they said, you know, the ground is saturated. As a result of it being saturated, it's just backing up. We'll pump it, but the, it still won't go out. The water won't go out. And so I waited one month, you know, waited two months until we could take it no longer. My wife says, you just need to do it. So I called and said, just pump the thing. So they came out and they pumped it. And uh, after they pumped it, two weeks later, it filled back up again with more water. So I called him and said, well, is there anything else you can do? And they said, well, we can, but your ground is probably saturated. And, and uh, I tell you, it's going crazy because you get like three flushes in the morning in the toilet. And you got to get those in before you shower or before you run any water. So everybody's like, don't run any water. Get the flushes in before we get going. And then, and then you might get a flush in the afternoon and you might get a flush uh, at night, depending on how much water is taking place. Go on there. But it's driving my wife crazy. And, uh, and, and I'll say it's driving me crazy a little bit, too. Uh, last week, I, I saw on Craigslist there was a, a cataract, which is a raft for sale. And um, I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, this is, um, I'm just going to throw out an offer that's, like, really dirt cheap. So I threw out an offer that was just, like, dirt cheap. And the guy accepted it. And, uh, and so I went to my wife. And I said, you know, um, I got a really good deal on this cataract, this, this raft. And, uh, and do you know what she says to me? She goes, haven't you seen your septic? The septic is pouring out of the ground, and you want to take your money, and you want to put it into a cataract? I was not in good standing with my wife, and that is the perfect example of not being in good standing. So, of course, I was going to shut my mouth on that. We did end up making a deal that I have to get the septic fixed, and I also have to get her carpets clean. And she gave me a huge list that has to be done before I um, get that cataract, but we're still in that process of, of doing it. But... Good standing is when things are going good with you. Things are going good with God and me. Things are going good with people and me. That's what good standing is. Favor, what does favor mean? Favor just means liked. So to summarize what this means, he grew in stature and favor with the Lord. His letter C, or uh, I'm sorry, letter A, growing in position and being well-liked and respected by God and men. Growing in position, which would be influence, or I would say position being able to use by God and influence from people is what happened with Samuel. And he was well-liked and respected by people and also men. But remember again where he's working. He's a boy at the temple. And it says that he's growing inside of Good standing and position with God, yes, but also men. What's taking place in his life? He must be just shining. This is the foundations of revival. Here's a boy that is working that has the glory of God shining on him because of his behavior and his commitment and his standing with God. God is doing something very, very powerful through Samuel. Number 12, this last one-liner. Samuel lived according to God's heart in mind. We see that in verse 34. This is when the Lord confronts Eli and he says, I'm taking out Hophni and Phinehas and I'm putting a priest in there that's going to do a good job. And this, that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house 
and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. What does that mean? Lived according to God's heart and mind? What does it mean? Letter B, what is on God's heart, it's on your heart. What is on God's mind, is on your mind. What is on God's will, is your will. That's what it means. How does God feel about the poor? Well, however God feels about the poor, I'm going to feel about the poor. That's what it's saying in regards to lived according to God's heart and mind. How does God feel about the outcast? How does God feel about the broken? However God feels about the outcast and however God feels about the broken is how I'm going to feel about the outcast, how I'm going to feel about the broken. How does God feel about malice? How does God feel about slander? How does God feel about hate? Well, however God feels about hate, however God feels about slander, however God feels uh, uh, about malice, whatever the way God feels about it is exactly the way I'm going to feel about it. How does God feel about forgiveness? How does God feel about anger? What, what, are, what is going on inside of God? Because whatever's going on inside of God's mind and heart is what I want going on inside of my mind and heart. You know, we can even go into political issues. You know, how does God feel about abortion? Well, I don't know how God feels about abortion. I don't know how I feel about abortion. I just want to find out what God feels about abortion because whatever God feels about abortion is the exact thing I'm going to feel about abortion. How does God feel about gay marriage? Well, how do I feel about gay marriage? You know, well, I want to find out how God feels about it because however God feels about it is how I'm going to feel about it. You know, I have people ask me, you know, all the time, how do you feel about this or how do you feel about that? And, and my response is, well, let me look it up. Because however God feels about it, I'm supposed to feel about it. That's what it means when you live according to God's heart and mind. Now when we look at uh, a passage in Luke, Paul mentions twice. It's Paul speaking, Luke wrote the book. But Paul makes a mention of David. He's after my own mind and my own heart. He's a man after my own heart and mind. What is, that, what is that saying? He's saying there, God's heart and mind and David's heart and mind are connected. This is the beginning stages of the revival that has taken place. And the reason why is because it has first taken place with Samuel. And if you know the story, as it takes place with Samuel, Samuel grows into the priest. And what does he do? He anoints the king that brings revival to Israel, which is King David. So look at these characteristics, five of them. All he's doing is introducing the characters in this passage in chapter 2. And in the process of introducing them, you see these one-liners. Samuel. Samuel ministered to the Lord. You see that? Samuel was ministering before the Lord. Samuel was growing in the presence of the Lord. Samuel grew in stature and favor with the Lord. Samuel lived according to God's heart and mind you see these things as a structure and a foundation of something great happening you want something great to happen in your home do we want something great to happen in our church do we want something great to happen in our family this passage is shouting from the top of its lungs follow this go after this this is the foundation where the holy spirit went after Samuel as a result of what he did. And, as, and ha- after it happened, the whole country and the world was changed. Challenging us to go after.
those things. Minister to the Lord. Grow in stature and standing. Minister before the Lord. Live according to God's heart and according to his will. And grow in stature. Oh, I'm sorry, I said that. Grow in, grow in the presence of the Lord as well. This is the challenge that this passage gives to us. God, we just thank you for Samuel's faithfulness. God, this story happened a little over 3,000 years ago. But God, as we um, see the story, we don't just see Samuel, we see you and how you work. And as a result of Samuel's faithfulness, God, we see your intervention in his life and in his world during his time. We just pray, God, that we as a people, God, would, would live accordingly, would follow the the example, the model that Samuel did as he was a little boy. Follow that, God, for the purpose of, of you working powerfully and mightily through us. God, we do pray for revival. God, we know that the, um, the, the, um, the things, God, that um, are given inside a revival, the consistent things that are given inside a revival must be done if it's going to take place and going to happen. We just pray, God, that those things would be um, implemented in our lives and we'll respond accordingly. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.